Welcome to The Resonance, the podcast about energy and sustainability from Alpha Energy Group, an Edison energy company. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Alpha Energy Group podcast. I'm Jeremy Nicholson, Corporate Affairs Officer at Alpha. I'm joined for my catch-up on the European and commodity markets by my colleague, our energy risk manager, Henry Homer. Henry, since we were last speaking, uh, there have been uh, you know, a few developments in the market, but I guess a lot of, a lot of people will be wondering how have things shifted? Um, has there been a big change? And uh, what's the most dynamic thing affecting the commodity markets at the moment? Good morning, Jeremy. It's always great to be back. I just want to sort of do a little throwback to the previous episode with, with my colleague Dan on the back that we're seeing a, a price plunge and a pricing environment that we've not seen for the past 20, 20 odd months, so to speak. This has resulted in a lot of queries, a lot of sort of um, semi forecasts out there trying to determine what's next. What is next for Europe and Europe's energy? From a dynamics perspective, it's been fairly flat. So there's not a lot of um, interest or buzz in the market, but we're still seeing the exact same three pillars I've been mentioning in past episodes, still providing a quite a nice fundamental equilibrium in the market. And of course, this relates back to the overall safe environment we're in, quote unquote. It's the risk, most of the, the Russian sources as well. But at the end of the day, we also have to understand the wider macroeconomics. What does industry has to say? What is the industrial demand in Europe and how that sort of cascades into power and gas pricing? That's something I hope to talk about more in this episode. Indeed, and I look forward to that. And I should say, by the way, that the market's being perhaps less exciting uh, than they've been over the last 12 or 18 months. It's a very good thing as far as consumers and probably the energy industry is concerned. It does suggest that we're returning to an element of normality. And uh, you know, with, with that in mind, talking about uh, the more boring commodities in a way, and I, I don't mean that uh, cattily, but we haven't mentioned carbon for a while and carbon pricing matters. But of course, things have been less exciting in the carbon markets. Uh, and some may say that's a very good thing, too, because having a relatively firm, stable price of carbon is probably more useful to low carbon investors than, than a highly volatile one. So is, is there anything more to be said about that, would you say? That's a good point. And um, again, some of our avid listeners might be wondering, well, we haven't heard about carbon anymore. What, what's happening to, to EUAs in general? The short answer is nothing, actually. It's, it's, been, it's been flat. It's been range bound. There's a lot of sort of push pull. Uh, but overall, we're not seeing too much of a dynamic in carbon. It's still sort of flirting with the with the low to mid 80s. We've seen it dip below 80 a couple of times as well. Overall, I would say there is a general lack of emission demand, meaning, again, something that we'll tie into later on this podcast episode with low industrial usage. It generally means Europe is emitting less. And when you emit less, you require less of EUAs and this has a cascading effect into the wider EUA market. Now overall, just to refresh memories, the carbon market or better known as the EU ETS, the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, is a compulsory scheme. You must comply if you're a compliance entity. There's no two ways around it unfortunately and because of that compulsory compliance it means buying demand is artificial. One of the reasons why is the few commodities in Europe, if not the only, that is forever in contango because again if you look at uh, the december contracts for 23 versus december 24 25 etc etc you do see this nice contango curve because again the market prices in 
the longer you go out, the less supply it will be. Again, this is this is designed to do this. It's designed to do this in a certain way. And that's basically the result why you do see this contango. Now, we also know EUAs don't expire. So if this is so clear cut, why does nobody sort of go all in? I, I know I'm going to emit so and so. I know there's, there's no expiration date. Why don't I just bot buy and just wait it out and, and make a profit? Well, there's two ways to think about this. Number one, yes, there are people actually doing this. I'm referring to non-compliance entities. I'm referring to the hedge funds, the financial institutions of the world who do hold e-way. Yes. On the other hand, industrial users or compliance entities, you have the issue of cash flow. And that's the only reason why you have these future markets. Cash flow. Companies generally budget year on year. You don't really have enough cash on hand to trade as much of these emission certificates as you would do if you were a financial institution. So that's the sort of background there. Overall, I still see 100 euro per ton as a key psychological level. Can it go there? Yes. Has it gone there? Yes. But overall, with a weaker slash more pessimistic economic environment, I expect this market to remain range bound for the time being, possibly hovering around the mid to low 80s. I think that's a really important point. And after all, you know, historically, people would have thought low 80s being relatively high carbon price and, you know, certainly one sufficient to drive significant change in the economy. And we'll return to the demand side of that in a moment. Uh, but on the supply side, a couple of the big risks we've talked about in the past, you know, the availability of hydro and the drought risk as far as recharging that's concerned and the availability of the French nuclear fleet. And how are things looking on that front? That would be good trends, good key trends to look at for Q3. Now, just before I go into further, I, I want to sort of highlight that we're approaching the sort of um, final weeks uh, of Q2. And in general, I don't really see too much risk in the market right now. Hence, I, I mentioned the markets are more of a fundamental equilibrium, uh, if that makes sense. We're really seeing supply demand dynamics upgrading. There's not too much risk. We've seen escalations in Ukraine slash Russia not impacting pricing at all compared to 12, 18 months ago, so to speak. Overall, we're relatively comfortable where we are today. Storage, LNG, weather. But yes, there are persistent structural risks when it comes to nuclear. 60% capacity only. We've only seen levels such as this about two or three times in the past. And each of those two to three times, we've seen spikes. We're not seeing them yet. The warmer weathers, especially hotter than normal weathers over summer, could add stress to this as well. And of course, the persistent safety issues, courtesy of decades of underinvestment in the French grid, particularly the nuclear reactors, that will possibly come to the forefront in Q3, uh, as well as, as again, maintenance, weldings, can actually result in new safety issues being found out as well. And the drought risk in Europe, again, well publicized, Hydro stocks low, particularly in the Alpine and Mediterranean regions, should again provide some upside as well. And again, this is a byproduct of the mild weather. So things that actually assisted gas pricing and the winter pricing actually are exactly the same pivots that could result in a new market in Q3, possibly. Well, again, no one can guess. Again, we could be lucky. We could be two times lucky in a row. We could have a mild winter again. And then the markets again could test new lows. But again, second guessing where there is, is not something even the best forecaster out there can do. So there are risks that will start to be priced in, hence the near term can tango as well, particularly for Q3 and Q4 this year. Right. 
And um, uh, turning now to um, the demand side of the market, which you mentioned earlier on, I mean, in a sense, part of the reason uh, Europe got through uh, the last winter as easily, in inverted commas, as it did, because, of course, it wasn't really that easy at all, was partly down to uh, mild weather, as you say. In that sense, we dodged a bullet. But there were sort of bullets, you know, grazing other parts of the European economy, if you want to put it that way, and namely on industrial demand. And, you know, I'm conscious that, you know, having read a consultation document from a from the British government re- recently, uh, claiming it want to ha- wanted to have amongst the most competitive energy prices within Europe, I thought, well, that's all very well, but Europe's becoming increasingly uncompetitive globally. And, and this is a real problem, isn't it, for European manufacturers? Well, what's demand looking like at the moment? Yeah, it's it's sort of an unfortunate sort of conundrum we have now. And just to sort of zoom out a little, this is the topic that's, let's say, more talked about recently, since, since the energy crises of the past sort of two years. But Europe has lacked competitiveness for, for a lot longer than that. And that actually goes back to the, let's say, green initiative-led policies, something we talked about earlier, carbon. It does result in a lack of uh, competitiveness from European firms versus firms who don't need to pay extra surcharges for emissions, particularly those in Asia and some regions in the US. Uh, let's remove California from this equation because they do have a, a carbon mechanism as well. But overall, this has resulted in a, in a skewed, uh, let's say, relationship dynamic uh, for Europe. Now, zooming in towards more recent trends, demand has dropped. And this is one of the reasons for that TTF plunge we mentioned earlier on, even though we know from past episodes, LNG premiums are more expensive, structurally speaking. But we're not really seeing the same structural premiums for LNG actually being carried over. And that's due to, again, either voluntary or involuntary slashes in demand. Now, let's just look back at the at the sort of main gas use in Europe as well. So from Roughly about Q3 last year, I'm using Q3 because we had that sort of massive spike in August last year. Towards the end of Q1 this year, again, I'm not using Q2 because we still don't have the full numbers just yet. But from Q3 last year to Q1 this year, Europe gas uh, use roughly dropped around 20%, give or take. Again, I'm not using decimal points here, but broad brush examples. But if you look at the key industrial heartlands of Europe i.e. Germany, big, big industrial country, that figure actually shoots up to almost 30% reduction. Now, this is, again, a cascading cause. And again, if you do look into it, it results in low industrial use. Low industrial use means lower demand. Lower demands cascades into lower pricing. Now, this is not something that's, again, sudden, so to speak. We've seen issues snowballing. As well, the most famous case I can probably give on this episode, and something again that is well publicized, is the exit of uh, BASF, the chemical company from Europe. Again, historically been based uh, in Germany for 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 most of its existence, uh, moving outside of Europe as well, because again, it's it's just not it's not feasible, it's not economically feasible for these companies to to perform in Europe right now. And again, with recent forces coming into play as well the famous one being uh mr biden's inflation reduction act with its huge subsidies for green technologies and quote-unquote buy american clauses there is a genuine fear that we might see a deindustrialization and disinvestment of europe given the actions of what's happening in the us and china regarding policy so again that, that's a big big factor we, we should be we should be keeping on and the, and the question goes 
what what is happening in Europe and its energy with the with the inflation, with with carbon, all amalgamating into one big trend that yes, we're seeing good pricing. But why are we seeing good pricing? Is it because weather has been abnormally mild? Possibly. Is it because we're seeing LNG arrivals we've never seen before? Possibly as well. Or are we seeing industrial demand dropping to an extent that is now becoming structural? Unfortunately, I don't have the answers on this episode because I'm still waiting for the Q2 numbers. That will probably shed a bit more light. But until then, only time will tell. I think you're right about that, sadly. And, you know, who knows the final answer to that question? All I can say is talking to former colleagues in energy intensive industries in Germany and elsewhere, uh, they don't sound terribly optimistic at the moment. Maybe measures like the carbon border adjustment mechanism will help uh, uh, stem some of the tide. I don't know, but it doesn't look particularly optimistic from, from where we start here. That said, some of this demand reduction may be down to energy efficiency measures as opposed to just curtailing production and if so that that would would be more positive but lastly supplier margins how are those looking and and in particular the balance between commodity and non-commodity costs that's a good point and it goes back to the q2 period again we're approaching the end but just one last uh, sort of uh, mention that q2 traditionally has always been a good time uh, to tender doesn't matter Uh, removing the energy crises removing 2021 2022 removing covid19 Q2 has been tried and tested as being a perfect time to tender. You just exited winter, which means you do have a semblance of what storage injection requires for the next winter cycle. The markets are generally sort of laid back in spring. You've got decent weather as well. You don't have the holiday season as Q3 offers. You don't have the hot summers as Q3 offers as well. And you don't have the bad winters that Q4 possibly brings. So Q2 traditionally is always good. Now, it's no secret that supply availability has increased, but not necessarily in a good way, if if that sort of makes sense. So if you're looking from a purely availability of suppliers when it comes to tenders, yes, it's improved. Market cycles, market pricing have allowed suppliers to de-risk as well, same as end users, both household and industrials. But the margins that you might come across now are significant. I've seen margins seven, eight, actually up to nine times more in Germany right now. And unfortunately, this is a new normal when it comes to supply and margin. So you do expect to pay more for management fees. When you trade, uh, especially if you don't have the volumes to back it up, you might see suppliers putting a premium on, on your trades. Particularly, I see this more often on the continent compared to the UK, but this is a Europe-wide trend. And then in comes the commodities uh, versus non-commodity aspect. So when we, when we trade, we always focus on the commodity because no commodity can't be risk managed. It's, it's, it's regulatory tight. It's fixed to an extent to policy. Now, during the height of the crises, I'm going to use a, a extreme example here, Spain. Now, during the height of the crises, what they did was they basically added in a pass-through surcharge, something along those lines. There's a, there is a, a more appropriate, more apt, detailed explanation for this. But just to give a broad brush example again, the charges they add on to the commodity side when you trade actually sometimes exceeded the commodity price. So you basically doubled in pricing. They call it basically network charges at the end. And you see clients coming in and say, well, you know, you traded at X price. Why am I seeing Y price here? And that's actually down to something you can't control. So again, the non-commodity side of things actually impact your final invoices quite significantly. 
Now, fast forward 12 months later, you're seeing a complete reversal. The ratios of narcobati has actually dropped significantly because of tax breaks, subsidies, uh, removal of tax, you know, postponement of tax, you name it as well. Intervention schemes, uh, for example. And that means the commodity aspect now actually has increased in its ratio across Europe. Now, different countries will have different ratios, but overall, as a, as a Europe-wide summary, what you can manage on commodity now actually impacts your portfolio a lot more compared to the past 12 to 18 months. And that means flex management actually brings more benefits, believe it or not, compared to past years, because you can actually now impact your portfolio a lot more than you could do uh, in the past. And we do expect this trend to, to possibly go forward as inflation struggles to get under control. And precisely what we mentioned earlier, Jeremy, uh, regarding demand destruction and, and, and making it, making Europe attractive again for industry. I think that's a really important point in which to conclude there are things that, that you can do um, to help manage down the cost of the, or the risk of your bills. And as you say, Q2 traditionally a good time to go to tender. So thank you, Henry, for steering us through all of that. Look forward to catching up in a week or two on the European situation. Um, but in the meantime, uh, listen out for our weekly podcast and do have a look at our website, alphaenergygroup.com forward slash UK and our reports there. And we hope you join us again soon.